I'm Dr. Megan Corredo, and welcome to Real Stories, a podcast that features the narratives of trauma survivors, professionals, and community leaders. Real Stories provides a platform for guests with diverse life experiences to voice and honor their unique narratives. During today's episode, we will be speaking with Dr. Julian Ford. Dr. Ford, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Megan. It's a pleasure. So can you start off by telling us a little bit about who you are? Sure. Well, let's see. I'm, I'm a white guy in his 60s, and I'm a grandfather of seven and a father of four daughters, all grown. Um, and I'm a clinical psychologist in my work life. And my focus in my work has been on post-traumatic stress disorder. So I've really, my career started in psychology as more of a family therapist and a health psychology oriented professional. But I, I learned after a few years that most of the clients who I ended up seeing had experienced what I now understand are traumatic events in their lives, uh, sometimes over many years. And so I realized I had to learn about post-traumatic stress and I've dedicated my work life to doing that over the past 25 years. Wow, that's a long time, 25 years. I'm sure that you've heard a lot of different stories, provided support to a lot of different people in that period of time. Well, you know, I've, I have learned more from clients and from their willingness to share their life experiences than I have, than I have from any textbook or even from my the finest mentors. And I've had some wonderful mentors and colleagues, so not, not to in any way just them, but mm -hmm. my clients have been my main teachers. Wow. Can you tell us about what you do? Yes, well, I, I teach at a university and a medical school at the University of Connecticut. And, and I, I'm very privileged that to be the, the director of, of two centers in the National Child Traumatic Stress Network, uh, which wow. is a network of programs for that provide uh, services and education for, for regular people, for kids and families who've experienced trauma and for professionals all across the country. And the two centers that, that I direct, and really actually I, I work for all the people who work for the centers, we're all a team. One focuses on helping kids get through juvenile justice and stay out of juvenile justice when they've experienced trauma. And the other focuses on helping kids and families recover when trauma happens really early in life and when it has a really profound effect on kids' development. Okay. So I... I'm, I get to work with a very talented group of people from all over the world, actually, who are dedicated to helping kids and adults and families recover from trauma. Mm. And you specialize in complex trauma, too. Is that I do. I do, Megan, yes. And, and the reason why I think we call it complex trauma is because any form of psychological trauma, which, which really, by which I mean... Any, any experiences or events that, that threaten a person's life or that deprive them of their, their basic rights and safety or that <clears throat> harm them in a way that they have tremendous difficulty in recovering from, both emotionally and physically. So any kind of trauma is complex. 
But mm. when, when trauma happens, when kids experience trauma in the formative years of their lives, early childhood and even on into adolescence, it can really change the course of a, of a child's development. And mm. that complexity then is we're, we're trying to figure out how to help kids and adults who are not only trying to basically deal with the, the sense of fear and not being safe that occurs when trauma has occurred in a person's life, but they're also trying to figure out how to get back on track with just their ordinary development, which has often been thrown off the rails because they've been so busy surviving that they right. haven't really been able to focus on doing the things that we all take for granted as just part of growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, I really appreciate how succinctly and clearly that you also define complex trauma. Um, I know sometimes when you, when we're reading books, research articles, looking at the literature, things can feel kind of overwhelming. Um, but providing that really clear, um, direct definition, I think, will be really helpful for people in understanding complex trauma. I sure hope so, Megan, because it, it's so complex that I've needed to not simplify it, but I've needed to kind of pull it to, together and, and figure out what's what's at the core of all of this so that we're not trying to essentially change something that is too complex to even be understood. Fortunately, right. even even complex trauma can be understood. And that that's actually what we what I've learned to do in therapy in working with people who are recovering from complex trauma, just to help them look at their lives and look at their life experiences and just sort out how how have things happened? How has one thing led to another? How have their reactions been perfectly understandable and often very, uh, very necessary, but sometimes have led to problems in their life? A, a perfect example is, uh, I know one of the things you, you want to know about are turning points in, in mm -hmm. uh, my life and my career. So I'll jump ahead and tell you one. Sure. Uh, if you don't mind. And that is, <clears throat> I've had several really important turning points, but most recently, about, uh, about 15 years ago, another psychologist here in Connecticut uh, made contact with me and I hadn't even met him. Um, and he, he was a psychologist working with kids in the juvenile justice system. Okay. Um, and what he said to me was, you know, these kids have all had trauma, but we're not doing anything for them. So mm -hmm. we need to do something. We need to figure out which of the kids have had what kinds of trauma and how we can best help them. So that actually was the first time I ever thought of working with with teenagers. I've oh, worked wow. with families before, but never with teenagers specifically. So before that you were working mostly with adults? Mostly with adults or, or with families. And, okay. and families might've had teenage kids, but they, they often had kids of a variety of ages. So I wasn't really focused on adolescence. Mm -hmm. But um, when my colleague said, you know, this is really important and we need to do something about it. So we actually then figured out a way to start to help the, the, the system here, the juvenile justice programs here in Connecticut to identify kids who've experienced trauma. And lo and behold, almost all of them had, but different kinds of traumas. And then mm. we figured, well, you know, you can't just identify trauma. You've got to actually do something to help kids and their families recover from trauma. Right. So we actually, we, we started basically a program 
over many, many years. Um, and now there are many programs like that that have started in many areas of the country and all over the world, basically to help kids not just deal with the, the challenges of being involved in juvenile justice, which are quite a lot. I, if I had been involved in juvenile justice as an adolescent, I don't know if I would have made it frankly. Mm -hmm. These kids are incredibly smart and resilient. Mm -hmm. But they've got not only that challenge, but they've also got the challenge of having to deal with just not feeling safe and, and often having been in situations in their lives where they really were not safe and they had to really cope in ways that were sometimes aggressive, sometimes by withdrawing and, and not being very participatory. And as a result, they got labeled as bad kids when they're just mm -hmm. really good kids we're trying to survive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so just thinking about connecting the, the complex trauma that you were just referring to, and then youth in the juvenile justice system, they're just be, being hit with trauma all different ways, in addition to trying to figure out how to recover, achieve developmental milestones in a system that's also inherently traumatizing. Exactly, and, and you know that. I mean, you do wonderful work with those kids as well. Thank you, thank you. Um, so can you talk to us about some of the adversities that you have faced in the course of your work? Well, you know, I, I've been very fortunate. I think uh, the adversities I faced are nothing compared to those of the clients I've worked with. So just to mm -hmm. put everything in perspective, I I really think that the, the concept of, of white privilege is, is a really important one and I, I I know that I have been the benefit of that, both because of the skin, color of my skin, the fact that I grew up in a family and a community where there were quite a lot of resources. But probably some of the, some of the the most adversity that I faced, believe it or not, um, was actually before I was ever in the work world, and that was something that made I think maybe a lot of people can relate to, which is for many many years for the first. 11 years of my life, my family never lived in the same place for more than two years. Oh, wow. So we were, we were constantly moving. And it wasn't because of any dire circumstances. We were, we were fine. And we lived in, in nice houses uh, for, for most of that time. This was far enough back that uh, in the summertime, we were baking and didn't have air conditioning. Uh, but we mm -hmm. still had comfortable houses and we were safe. But we just kept moving because my father kept changing jobs and okay. he was kind of looking for his path. So what happened to me was that uh, I ended up constantly having to recreate new friendship circles, fit in with new kids, fit in with new schools. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I will always remember, this is not traumatic, but it, it was something that helps me have a little bit of, of insight into what it might be like to have real trauma. When mm -hmm. I was going to first grade, I had not been in that community for more than a week or two. And my parents thought I would be just fine. So they sent me off with the, the next door neighbor girl who was also going to first grade mm -hmm. and said, you know, you two go ahead and she'll show you where to go. So she showed me where to go. <laughs> she took me to the school and then she proceeded to go into the classroom that she knew she was supposed to go into. And I was like, uh oh, <laughs> I didn't know where I was. So you could imagine there, there's a six year old standing in mm -hmm. the hallway when everybody else is in their classroom and I'm just sobbing because I don't oh. know what to do. Now, I did, I, my life was not in danger. This was not trauma, but it was, mm -hmm. it was very upsetting for me. And, you know, it kind of, it, it kind of gave me a, 
a sense of, I don't want to see other kids have to be in a situation where they feel like nobody is there to help them. Mm. And when they don't know what to do, and they really do need some help. So, you know, I think that's mm -hmm. had a lot to do with why I've gone into psychology. Mm. That's so interesting. It must have it must have really had a significant impact on you, too, if you remember that so vividly from the first grade. Isn't that something? Yeah, right. I don't, I remember almost nothing else from the first grade. In the second grade, I remember that I kept doing well enough in the math quizzes that I got to go out on the playground early. So I have, okay. some, <laughs> I have some positive memories too. <laughs> okay. But, but you're right. That, that one memory is very, very strong. And I think that's, that, that, that was a clue to me also. When I started to learn about post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, mm -hmm. and I learned that one of the hallmarks of that of that problem is having memories that are just so intense and indelible that they they just you never forget them and you you don't even want to remember them but they just keep coming back i realized mm -hmm. you know that's that's how those memories form it's because i was just feeling so emotionally upset and my body was just you know, probably shaking and trembling. So I was mm -hmm. feeling that physically, just like Bessel van der Kolk talks about it when he says the body keeps the score. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't trauma, but it gave me a little bit of insight into what it might be like to have even far worse trauma and why it's so important not to let anyone who's experienced trauma have to go through life without help and understanding why those memories keep coming back and what they can do now in order to feel that they are finally secure and safe and can go on with their lives. Mm. So that, that event was almost like a reference point for you in thinking yes. about like a vulnerable moment for you as a child and then almost like a tool for you to connect with clients who've also, who've, who've been through multiple forms of trauma. Exactly, you put it perfectly. Mm. Um, are there any other positive moments or turning points in your story? I know that you shared um, one of them. I don't know if there are any more that have had a significant impact on your life or your career. Well, yes, there, there, there are more than I can tell you, but I'll tell you one. Okay. <laughs> and that is that when I was in high school, I, I had a, a, another a difficult turning point, but it was, it turned out to be really good. And that was, I was in a math class that was really hard. And I thought I knew, I thought I knew what I had to know for the first test. And I will always remember that the night before that test, I had a dream that I was in the class and taking the test and I had no idea what the questions were about or how to answer them. And I remember I woke up from that dream thinking, oh, I'm so glad that's a dream. Well, I went into the test and I knew nothing about what oh, the no. questions were asking. <laughs> I, <laughs> Your dream I was came living, true. <laughs> yes, my dream came true. I don't think it was, I, I have no idea why that happened, but it, it left an indelible imprint. Well, the good thing about that was that what that showed me was that I needed to really understand what I knew and what I didn't know and not let things that I thought I knew go by the wayside when I really didn't know them. So mm -hmm. I started studying really hard. Um, and I actually then, about a year later, I had a math teacher who saw how hard I was working. And it was really nice because she was a really tough teacher and she was, she was hard on people. If you didn't do the work, she would really get right in your face. Oh, so wow. She was like, literally? 
Yeah, well, really, yeah. Oh, wow. (laughs) Appropriately, but she she was a stern and she would really let you have it Um, because she wanted she wanted the students in the class to to really put in the effort and and learn. And it was it was really it was hard. It uh, it was really complicated math. So I worked at it really hard and she actually noticed and she actually encouraged me, which I thought Mm -hmm. she was just going to be yelling at me. She encouraged me and I felt so good about that, that I did really well in that class. And from that point on, I got straight A's for the rest of my college and graduate career. Oh, wow. Do you remember so, what she said to you when she encouraged you? Gosh, you know, I don't honestly remember. That's a really great question, Megan. So I just remember I can picture her face. So mm-hmm. that's how memories are often, right? I can uh, picture her face. I can remember her talking in the class. And I sort of can remember a smile on her face, which is that's about all I can remember. And it, believe me, a smile from that particular teacher was like worth a thousand words. <laughs> okay. And you remember how you felt? I exactly. I remember exactly mm-hmm. how I felt and I, how motivating that was. You know, and it, it did turn me into a bit of a of an overworking student. So I, I probably worked at it worked at school and classes a little harder than I had to. But it really gave me a sense probably one of the first times that I had experienced the sense that other people might actually think that I was smart enough to be able to do a good job. And that meant Mm. a lot. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. So where do you see yourself or your work in the future? Well, what I, what I see is that um, the, the most important thing to me now, and there, there are many, but of all the things that I'm doing that are important, I think that, helping therapists who are working with kids and adults and families who have experienced trauma, helping them to see ways of doing therapy that they might not have thought of and that you can't just read about in a book. That's become really important to me. I've read a lot of books, a lot of really good books, a lot of good articles, but the way I've learned about doing therapy has been by watching other therapists when I've had permission to do that. And by, of course, by learning from my clients, as I said. So that motivated me in one of the centers that I mentioned. What we do is we film therapists meeting with clients. However, clients are actors. So Uh we're very careful because we don't want to expose real clients to that kind of violation of privacy. Even if they consented, I don't think it would be really a very good idea. And what's amazing to me has been that the actors who we've worked with, uh, I I have been so fortunate to work with an incredibly talented film director and producer, actually a team of several filmmakers who film these therapy sessions. They also, they help us basically set them up. They coach us through them so that we can really get to the heart of the issues. Mm. And these films, I think, are just, they're, they're unlike anything I've seen in my training. And I wish I had seen them when I was first in training because they show therapists dealing with, and by the way, we, we make the, the sessions that, that we, um, we make them all about crises. Okay. So these are not just kind of boring, mundane, mm-hmm. <laughs> 
day in and day out sessions, which rarely happen anyway. I think right, most therapy right. sessions, <laughs> most ther- therapy sessions are really just fascinating and important, and that's mm-hmm. and that's important to 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 know that as well because otherwise we're not paying enough attention to what's really interesting in our clients' lives. Mm-hmm. But these sessions are uniquely interesting because they are very intense. The actors just bring out the issues whether it's suicidality mm-hmm. or dissociation or an intense flashback or dealing with being commercially sexually exploited. There's mm-hmm. just so many issues that are highlighted in these sessions. And what you get to see is, and, and we have this group of therapists who have been wonderful to work with, again, from all over the country. And they do the therapy in many different ways. They use many different approaches to therapy. But the common theme is that they just get right in and they are very, very intently connecting to and listening to and guiding their clients as they work through these crises. So those films, and by the way, they they, they are actually, uh, I'll do a little promotion here because there's yes, no please. commercial... This is all completely freely available. So the National Child Traumatic Stress Network has a learning center. If you go online and you just Google National Child Traumatic Stress Network Learning Center. Okay. On that on that website, they have then a they have a a section called courses and a section called clinical resources. Mm. And then there's a series called the critical moments in developmental trauma treatment and that's what these and these films all you have to do by the way you have to you have to sign up for the learning center but there's no charge and they they don't do anything uh they don't make you jump through any hoops you just have to sign up and then you can watch these films and we we've also we've shown the films on webinars where we've had other therapists then mm. provide commentary. So we talk about what's happened in this session and mm-hmm. you know, why did the therapist do this? And the therapists talk about what they were thinking. So you kind of get inside the head of the therapist and mm. see what she or he was thinking and why they said what they said or didn't do what they didn't do. Mm-hmm. So long way of saying, Megan, that is where I see things heading for me. I want to just keep providing developing those kinds of resources where therapists and clients, but especially therapists can see other therapists really doing the work mm-hmm. and learn from that and then do it their own way. Nobody, nobody's yeah. saying that any of these sessions are the right way. They're just an, they're an example of a possibility. And that's, that's how I learn. I, I learn by yeah. seeing how other people do things and I, I take what I can use and I leave what I can't aside. Right, right. This sounds like so completely different from some of the role play videos um, and and recorded therapy sessions that I remember viewing in my uh, in my education. Not to say that they, you know, don't have their helpful moments, but this sounds like so much more. um, I don't know. It sounds like it's it's so much more alive. So I'm looking forward to checking out the website. I can include the link for it as well for listeners. And I'm also thinking about like potential ways that I can incorporate this with my students in the classroom. I teach master's level um, social work students. And I think part of um, social work education, you probably face this um, as you're educating students as well, is figuring out ways to bridge the, um, the theory 
and the research with the practice. And it sounds like this is an, an incredible way of bringing both of them together in a way that's meaningful, in a way that can like kind of enhance and enrich uh, people's practice with trauma survivors. It sounds amazing. Well, thank you, Megan. I, I hope it is. And I, you know, the everybody who's seen these has said that they are really eye-opening. And the therapists who've done them, I've, I've never heard therapists say so many positive things before. Oh, wow. <laughs> just think, you know, oh my gosh, that was such a tough session, but it is so great to be able to see other people and how they do the work. And I've never, mm. and exactly like you said, most of us have never seen this. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, the videotapes that are out there, they can be really good, but I, I think they, they often don't quite kind of cut right to the chase. And, right. And that's what these sessions, I mean, you're right in there and there, there's no, there's no fooling around the, you got to get right to work and you got to, and you got to do, you got to work on that therapeutic relationship mm-hmm. at the same time that you're thinking about the safety of your client and sometimes your own safety. I mean, it's, it really does bring out the complexity, but it also shows how it's possible to survive even when it seems like you're in a session where you just don't know what to do. And somehow you find a way to bring you and your client together to a point where there's actually at least the beginning of resolution, maybe not a complete one. Right. I can't wait to sign up and, and to check these out and to figure out how to incorporate them um, into the work that I'm doing as well. And just thinking, just listening to you um, talk about these, like how often do you hear people talk about like role play exercises or watching watching someone else's session with this much excitement? And how often do you hear people say like, this was an incredible experience, you know, reflecting on this session? Um, mm-hmm. Not necessarily reflecting on a session, but reflecting on um, like, uh, a simulated session. So yeah. the feedback that you're getting sounds like it's really speaking to the power of of this concept. Well, I really hope so. And and the the team that's been involved in doing this, the filmmakers and the therapists and the actors, have just been phenomenal. So I, I highly recommend it. Even though I I, uh, I dread watching my own sessions. <laughs> I think we all do. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh man, why did I say that? <laughs> oh, and 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 there are some doozies. There's some things in my sessions where I I I know I'm like, ooh, I should I shouldn't have said that to that mom. I, in fact, I can think of one in particular, just a quick example, where I was talking with a, a mom and an adolescent daughter, and I'm and what I'm thinking is, oh my gosh, this mother is just you know she's just trying to be so controlling, and she's mm. she's fighting with her daughter to try to get her daughter to be safer in her own life. So mm. how is that going to work? And at some point, I, I don't remember exactly what I said. I sort of blanked it out, but it's on it's on the film. Mm-hmm. I said something to, uh, to sort of gently suggest that maybe fighting with her daughter wasn't the best way to get her daughter to actually pay attention and, and think about what she wanted her to think about. And oh my gosh, what was, what was really great was that the, the mom in that session what she did was she then immediately said, well, you obviously don't know anything about being a parent. Are you mm. a parent? Mm. And then, and, and I said, yes. And thinking, you know, I don't want to do too much self-disclosure here. You know, boundaries uh-huh. are important. But I, so I said, yes. And then she said, well, how many daughters, or do you have any daughters? And, and I said, 
I don't think that's really something we should be talking about. Let's talk about what's happening between you and your daughter. And she goes, no, 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 no. I want to know, do you have any daughters? Do you know what it's like to be the parent of a daughter? And she just really kept at it. <laughs> and she basically showed, this is what happens when you let that kind of judgmental thought seep into the session. Mm. The client won't, won't always, sometimes they may shut down and they'll kind of just back off and go, okay, fine. If you're going to judge me, then, you know, I'm not going to really talk about anything. I'm not going to share that much with you. Or sometimes they just go turn around and they kind of give it right back to you. Oh, you, you judge me? Well, now let me judge you. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was that was really brilliant. I mean, I, I asked the the actor who was doing that afterwards, and she said, "Oh, it's just my natural response, you know. Mm. I just I just thought, you know, at that moment, it's like if if you're telling me all this stuff about how I shouldn't be fighting with my daughter, you must mm -hmm. not know anything about being a parent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so for her, it was just like a totally natural response, and that's what's so great about these films. It for the most part, it does not look like there's any role playing. And there is no script. They okay. are, by the way, they're, they're, we know sort of what the issue is going to be and we know where we hope we might get to in the session, but mm -hmm. there is no script whatsoever. It's all very much spontaneous. I love the fact too that like you're admitting that you didn't do it perfectly and you you are a like a premier trauma expert you've written um books you've written articles you've you've um engaged in research studies and I think that's like an, a really important thing for people to remember because so often we think that we're we're supposed to get things perfectly every time and we yeah. we give other people the opportunity for recovery and growth and we say you can bounce back again but then for some reason for ourselves we don't send ourselves those same messages so i think it's also really powerful for you to say like yeah i said the wrong thing and i had to recover it, and i had to engage in self-reflection and i had to come back to it you know think about things from a different angle despite all the experience and the expertise that you have well thank you you give me too much credit <laughs> um, the real the real experts are our clients but I, I admit that I've been working at this for long enough that I ought to know something. And, and one of the things that I learned really early on is if you can admit your own mistakes, then that's probably the best way to encourage others to, to, be, to be thoughtful and be self-reflective. And honestly, Megan, that I'm not really very good at being self-reflective. I've had to work hard at it, sort of like I had to work hard at math when I was a teenager. Okay. But... I've, I've really come to believe that by working very hard and being intentional about paying attention to what it is that I'm saying, how I'm affecting other people, mm -hmm. and again, I'm still not very good at it, but just paying attention to that and sort of looking at myself in the mirror, I think that's been one of the most important things for me as a, as a psychologist, as a therapist, um, even in spite of my failures as a father and a grandfather. It's just the ability to actually look in the mirror because that's what mm -hmm. I that's what I ask clients to do. I ask right. them to look at themselves in the mirror and I try to help that be a, an experience where they don't just see the bad things or they don't just see the failures or the weaknesses, but they see the strengths, they see the incredible resilience, they see the, mm -hmm. the intelligence that is often underrated by everybody except for that one math teacher, for example. Mm -hmm. 
And that's what I think is so brilliant about therapy potentially is that it can be a mirror that shows you the truth, but it shows you some truths that you haven't been able to see because you just haven't felt that you could look carefully at yourself. Right, right. Um, so are there any, any resources that you would recommend to listeners beyond the NCTSN link? Um, I know that you have books, you have you recently came out with a couple of books. Anything that you would recommend to people that want to learn more about complex trauma or trauma or um, work with juveniles um, who are impacted by the justice system? Sure. Yeah. Well, I would always start with the the best book as a professional that I ever read was by Judith Herman, and that's called Trauma and Recovery. Mm-hmm. And she wrote that back in the late 1980s. It was published in 1992. So anybody who is interested in understanding trauma, how people are affected by trauma and how they recover, trauma and recovery is the, is the best possible place to start. That's where I, that's where I started. Okay. Uh, so that's a great, that's a great one. I, I think that uh, a more recent book that's really really fascinating and thought-provoking. I don't always agree with everything in it, but I think most of it is really valuable, and uh, and most of it I do agree with. It's called The Body Keeps the Score. That's mm-hmm. a book by Bessel van der Kolk. So I think that's a really a fine, a thought-provoking book, very, mm-hmm. really important. I actually like... Uh, uh, I don't want to be self-promoting, but a couple of books that Christine Courtois and I have edited. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is one of the recent ones that you mentioned uh, on the treatment of complex traumatic stress disorders. So w- the reason why I like those books, one is uh, the one that just has been published in a second edition this year um, is on adults, working with adults. And then one that's a few years ago was on working with children who'd experienced complex traumatic stress disorders. And why I like those is because there are authors in those books who have written about their approach to treatment in so many different ways. We have, we have people who do very, very behavioral kinds of therapy, prolonged exposure, cognitive therapies, cognitive processing therapy, mm-hmm. uh, eye movement desensitization or reprocessing, dialectical behavior therapy. Um, I can just go on and on. Interpersonal psychotherapy. I, I hate to not, even, not give you the whole list, but that's a sample. And, and of course, there are You're some, giving us a sample. Uh, some of the <laughs> Some of the chapters are written from an experiential, existential, and a psychodynamic perspective. So the reason I like them is because you get to see and hear from the authors about how their approach can really be helpful for people who've experienced complex trauma, whether they're mm-hmm. kids or adults. Yeah, and, and it's also really important to um, remember that there's multiple pathways to trauma healing, too. And um, your books definitely highlight that there are many different ways that people may heal. And it's also important for us to have like multiple options when we're working with trauma survivors too. I think I think um, the books really give a great overview of a lot of different interventions. And then the clinician can kind of think about what makes makes the most sense for their clients and also for themselves. Exactly. That, that, that was exactly our goal. Now, another, a couple of other really great books that, uh, that my colleagues, Marilyn Cloitra and Ulrich Schneider, um, and also in the second one, Marcus Landolt, these are 
two books on the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder that also have some incredibly just wonderful chapters by people writing from many different approaches. So those, I think, are, are that's a great resource. In fact, it's called Evidence-Based Treatments for Trauma-Related Disorders in Adults, and then there's a second one in Children and Adolescents. Okay. So I'd recommend those as well. Okay. Thank you. I think that will give um, people a great place to start. Anything else that you want to share with our audience? Um, just that currently with our, the, the two major crises and developments that we're, that we're experiencing really globally, the pandemic with COVID-19 and the, the awakening of, where, of awareness, which is long overdue about the, the, the terrible burden that racism has, has created for so many people all over the world with those two really major upheavals happening, um, it's become increasingly important for me in my work to, to be thinking about how can I be on the one hand truly supportive and, and be, a, be a, of help to the, the many colleagues that I have who are on the front lines and who are risking their lives in order to care for people who are experiencing COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And on the, on the other hand, to be even more reflective about the ways in which I've had implicit biases ways in which I have not been anti-racist and ways in which I could be more intentionally anti-racist. So again, uh, it, it just seems like these are two turning points in, in our overall society and globally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really, I, I think it's so important for those of us in the mental health field to not just talk the talk, but to figure out ways to walk the walk and actually contribute to those two efforts. Right. That's that's what I've been focused on lately. Thank you so much for your insight, for the resources you provided. Um, It was great having you. Great to talk with you always, Megan. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Real Stories. The resources referenced by today's guest speaker will be included in the episode description. For more information about me, Dr. Megan Corrado, and my work with the story's trauma narrative intervention, please visit my website www.storiesguide.com. Also, feel free to follow my story social media pages on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Remember that for every story of trauma and adversity, there's always a story of strength and resilience.